This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to the Concepts Podcast. Welcome. Today, we're going to be talking about compulsion loops or feedback loops or whatever we want to call them. To define that, I'm going to say they are a series of repeated actions or emotional states that serve as the foundation for everything you do in the game and life and whatever you want. Steve, do you want to elaborate on that at all? Uh, No, no. I think that's a good start. We can elaborate on it over the next hour here with our special guest. So, Phil, you want to introduce our guest? Yeah. So this is Mac from Macabre Storytelling. You cover a number of interesting things that overlap with our interests. And I was wondering if you could introduce yourself. Yeah, Mac. Yeah, I run the YouTube channel Macabre Storytelling or Macabre. Doesn't. When I first started, I thought it was pronounced Macabre, but I guess it is pronounced Macabre. So kind of already too late to kind of switch. But yeah, I usually do media analysis. Sometimes I discuss men's issues, just sort of like the, the interlap between that and media. Yeah, sort of a jack of all trades sort of all over the place. Sounds familiar. Nice. We were actually just talking about whether it's macabre or macabre before you showed up. Yeah. Yeah. Right before you popped on. Yeah. I know. You can do whatever you <laughs> please. <laughs> Yeah, so I actually came across you from your film analysis, but then also you had the best take on the pickup community I've come across to date. That's honestly the most even-handed and insightful of all of them, which I'm going to definitely link to your video. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, I was in that for a while, and it was something a lot of guys... It's almost like... It, it kind of felt like online dating like five or six years ago, where every guy looked into it, or they were exposed to it to some extent, but a lot of guys don't like to admit it. So, yeah, it was kind of... I figured I would share my experience and then because mine was quite the roller coaster ride yeah yeah i don't know how far steve got through the video it's quite the hefty one but worth it that actually does kind of come into this area here because we're talking mostly about well from my angle it's gamification of things of life from steve's angle it's from addiction and all that and i found that like the whole pickup thing often i mean it originated out of nerds essentially trying to find kind of ways to speak to women and the way they were thinking about it it was in a gamified way like they wanted to think okay if they say x i'll say y and kind of have the stepwise motion and that, that was kind of the root of it from the forum days back what neil strauss covered but obviously that's not the best approach to having an actual human engagement with people right yeah and it makes sense because a lot of guys who struggle with women I don't want to say lacking in emotional intelligence. Maybe like they're usually lacking in general social skills. So they tend to sort of be familiar with games, whether it's, you know, tabletop games, video games, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, they think of things very logically, very black and white, very if I do a... I will receive B. And so then going into sort of like the dating world, chatting and talking of women, that's just a horrifying realm for them because there is no, as we all know, there is no input A, get back B. It's way more complicated than that. And of course, like it makes sense that they would be drawn to this, as you put it, Neil Strauss, he literally entitled it the game. Of course, they would be drawn to this very, this template where everything sort of makes sense or is given some sort of logical structure to it. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of guys, it helps a lot of guys kind of get over their fear of just like, you know, approaching a woman or speaking to women or all that stuff. But the problem is, is when, and we can kind of explore this, the problem is when they kind of get out there and they're too reliant on that systemic approach and they can't kind of gain that social awareness, they start to get frustrated. 
because they're like, hey, it's not like kind of like you mentioned where with video games, hey, it's not if I do this with one woman, it doesn't give me the same outcome with another. What's going on? Why is this happening? And if they don't break out of that, it can lead to some very bad outcomes. Yeah. And I just wanted to talk a little bit more about not explore the actual concept too much. I have like a page of notes on this. So the way these loops tend to work is you have a concept or a mental model of how things work, which is actually linking back to an episode we did on design thinking, having a conceptual model of how a system works. Then you take an action in games. This is for games specifically. Then the rules interact with what action you took and how you interacted with the system. And and then you get feedback to incorporate back into your model. And I feel like for a lot of guys that don't have the social skills, that last step, the feedback is often the part that drives them towards pickup. Because in dating as a guy, it's, I find that it can be a lot of just rejection without any feedback as to what went wrong, which can cause guys to be like, women just don't make any sense. And that is where they kind of fall off. And then there's these corners of the internet, which it's a problem. And it's one you've talked about a fair bit, which has become the men's rights activist groups, but it's like groups of disenfranchised men, not sure how to figure out the system, not sure how to do what they want to do. And then there will be areas that are providing value to them, kind of giving them some sort of guidance. But then these areas seem to almost inevitably become destructive and toxic. Like, I think that's why Jordan Peterson originally, when he started speaking specifically to men, and I'm not necessarily a huge fan of his per se, but he was speaking to these men to help them with a direction in some way, just like basically telling them to clean their rooms and get their shit together. And then he was seen as this like crazy alt-right person. And I think it was because of that connection, which you pointed out in your pickup video about where these groups tend to become more radicalized as time goes on. Like they give you the candy to lure you into the truck and then off you go. Yeah, it's funny you bring up, you know, Jordan Peterson because... What makes him such an interesting case is that like when people ask me, I'm like, am I still a fan of Jordan Pearson? And I've kind of adopted this for a lot of, you know, popular figures. I can't really go off of an individual basis. I have to go off of his ideas because some of the stuff he says is like, great. Like you said, like, you know, just clean your room, like get your crap together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which for some men, it might just be common sense. You're kind of like, well, of course. But unfortunately for a lot of young men who didn't really have that sort of guidance or sort of like mentorship, just someone giving that little bit of encouragement can make like a night or day difference. But then on the other hand with Jordan Peterson, then he'll kind of go into some other topics where it's like, whoa, I don't, <laughs> like, I think you're very, I, I don't want to ascribe to this. But yeah, that was sort of a wake up call for me to just see, even in like sort of like the pickup sphere with men and women, all it really takes is a little bit of positive feedback. Like I've had experience with men where they'll be completely down themselves, like totally, like they're totally like quote unquote black pilled. Like they don't think they'll ever get a girl. They think they're completely undesirable. And then they'll have one positive experience with a girl at a bar or at a party. Not even like, you know, like getting late or anything like that, but just a woman showing interest in them or getting some sort of positive feedback, getting a number. And that will completely do it for them. That will be like a finally gotten that one little jolt of encouragement that I've been missing my entire life. But yeah, unfortunately for a lot of guys, they never even make it to that point. And all they face is just constant rejection. And as you said, the big issue there is that, and kind of connecting this back to sort of like the gamification, you know, if you're playing a video game, I'm playing through Elden Ring right now, I'm getting my ass kicked. I figured you um, would be actually, because you did yeah. some streams of Dark Souls. <laughs> oh yeah, it's great. I mean, I'm dying a lot. But <laughs> here's the thing, every time you die, you figure out something new. You figure out the mechanics of the boss, and eventually you get there with perseverance. The problem with when it comes to, you know, men approaching women is, as you said, a lot of guys, you know, what did I do wrong? And what's so difficult about it is that, one, sometimes you didn't do anything wrong. Sometimes it was just maybe she had a boyfriend. Maybe there were factors completely out of your control. 
they didn't do anything wrong. It was just wrong time, wrong place. But on the other hand, let's say he did, quote unquote, something wrong. Sometimes even the woman the guy is speaking to doesn't really know. And like consider like there have always been times when you've been with people or, you know, on dates or you've been pursuing someone and, you know, things just change. Your attitude towards them changes. And it may have been for particular small reasons, but it's very difficult to sort of put your finger on them. So even when guys do ask for that feedback, it's like, hey, you know, sorry, things didn't work out. I guess I'm not your type. Can you kind of give me some pointers or kind of give me some guidance as to where I went wrong? And yeah, sometimes there's just... They're like, yeah, sorry, I don't really know. It's just the vibe wasn't there. And that can be even more soul crushing for a lot of guys because they can try 50 times and not feel like they're getting any quote unquote better or they're improving that skill set. It also, to me, like for anybody listening to this and wants to be unfavorable, they might think that we're saying that women should be there to fix men. And I totally get why they don't want to do that because giving feedback to guys that's not desirable in person is dangerous and at remote could still be dangerous but also it's not usually met with like a thank you it's usually met with some slur of some sort so i get why they just rather just cut and run it makes perfect sense to me yeah i mean it's not their job to to train men yeah yeah and the hard thing there is that one of the main reasons i think a lot of guys end up falling into the toxicity space is that they don't really i don't want this to come off as sort of like a put down but they don't really know a lot of women or they don't really have experience even with like female friends or acquaintances. So when let's say a guy, as you put it, let's say a guy is rejected by a woman or, you know, he asks them, hey, why didn't things work out? And she doesn't really give a clear answer. Or she doesn't really know. Sometimes that guy might take that as a sort of like a personal affront or like he really won't see it from her point of view. So he'll kind of jump to the worst possible outcome. So instead of thinking, oh, maybe that woman had a boyfriend, maybe she just got to have a relationship, maybe she's a lesbian, like there could be countless reasons as to why this particular woman didn't respond positively to your advances. But in my experience, a lot of guys will automatically jump to, oh, she must think I'm ugly or she must be a bitch or she must be mean or, yeah, you know. she must think you're a pathetic small dick loser who can never get exactly. laid. And that not only leads to that rejection being 10 times worse, but it can start to sort of generate this for a lot of guys, this hostility or this sort of very negative caricature of all women because they don't really see it from their point of view. It's never like, hey, it could be reasons A through Y. Like it could be countless reasons as to why it didn't work out. It's always the most soul crushing, worst possible reason. And they internalize that. And every rejection is just a reinforcement of that and kind of tying it back. It kind of becomes like a loop where it just, it's a spiral downward basically for them. Right. So we're talking about feedback loops here as like, yeah, downward spirals, extinguishing behaviors, I guess an operant condition, you call that punishment, positive punishment. But feedback loops are very much things that can reinforce behaviors as well as, as we know. And gamification really plays on this to reinforce our wanting to do something, our desiring to do something more. And so in talking about that, in the pickup world, it almost gamifies everyday life in a way that can actually make this very addictive and kind of make you want to go out more if you start getting those positive reference experiences. And it seems like that community and the content that's been created, 80% of that content that is good is that you, that you say, you know, there's 20% that's highly toxic. But, you know, the 80% of that solid advice it is almost in a way meant to break that negative feedback loop, the personalization, uh, it's something about me as a person, and to really encourage getting more reference experiences so that you can accumulate those positive references. So maybe we can talk more about 
feedback loops and this kind of reinforcement. Yeah, I was going to say we should probably bring it back a bit more. But yeah, that's, I'm glad we did get to discuss that. Also, I would like to say that I think the pickup community might have been 80% positive before, but now that may have been reversed. I don't know. I haven't been paying attention to it since then. A friend put it really well. Because when I was making the video, I kind of was speaking with friends on my Discord and a friend put it really well. I think about 80% of the information you will get from the community is positive. But the problem is that extra 20% where kind of like the toxicity comes from, where they start talking about female nature and, you know, hypergamy and all that crap. The problem there is that what happens is it sort of infects the other 80%. Yeah. So, for example, if I were to give a guy a piece of advice and say, you yeah, know, women like confident men, women like men who are sure of themselves, that's a perfectly decent piece of advice, not very descriptive. You know, that's one of the main complaints a lot of guys have. But like that's a generally good and true piece of advice. People, men and women, are tend to be attracted to confidence or self-assuredness. But what will happen is then you'll kind of coat that by saying, you know, something like women like confident men because back in caveman days, they needed men to protect them from the wild and they need like the strongest man, the gene pool, yada, yada, yada. And it basically assigns this very like rigid, biologically deterministic view of women so you take that piece of good advice and it kind of warps it into this really weird this is why a lot of guys in like the red pillar like pickup community they speak of like when they use like they say females they almost start speaking of women like a species mm. like through like an anthropological lens as if they're like animals yeah. and it becomes this very strange objectifying lens at which they view women yeah where the language almost stops they sort of get away from even identifying them as individuals it's almost like hey women react to this it's not a woman might or might not it's women will react to this yada 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 yeah yeah it takes away the art form makes it try to be very rigid and scientific and anthropological metaphor fits that one thing was pointed out recently by somebody that i was listening to on a podcast i can't remember what her background was that generally speaking when we talk about like evolutionary psych we never hear people say like this society this time for this much periods of history live like X. We usually just say, oh yeah, in some glorious past, X, Y, or Z was how we lived. The thing is, it seems like humans are so adaptable that we can find cultures to support whatever bias we want. Do we want the noble savage kind of take where society has been the corrupting influence? Then we can find instances of those. Or we want to talk about how we used to be all really barbaric, kind of Hobbesian. Then we can find examples of that where society civilized everybody. Whatever bias we have, we can find. And one of the things I do, like the last thing I have to say, at least on pickup, is it's another one of those kind of pseudo-religious cults that we've talked about a number of times on here, that if you do it right, well, then it works. But if you don't get the results you want, well, then you weren't following the method as you should have. You weren't following the scripture as they see it. And that's on you. But yeah, Steve, you got anything else on that? No, I think we really went deep into the, the pickup feedback loop scenario here. And gamification is not just game as in pickup, but games as in video games, games as in gambling and gaming and other areas. So let's look at video games because I know you two have a common interest in that and I don't play many video games. But what kind of feedback loops do we find in video games that really reinforce behavior? Well, the core one that I found was, well, there's the one I talked about, which is the conceptual model leading into taking action rules and then adopting your model. But then that's just generally starting a game and figuring out how the mechanics work, how the rules work. And then after that, the general loop is that you got a challenge. So like kill a monster, then you get a reward. So loot or money or something. And then finally, whatever the anticipated result would be. So improve gear, improve skills, etc. So there can be short feedback loops or long feedback loops. And if you go too far in either direction, it's not great. Short feedback 
feedback loops would be like if you have a single room that you clear, you get some sort of outcome for that. Like you feel some accomplishment, but it gets just kind of tedious. You're winning too easily. And then for longer ones like JRPGs, Japanese RPGs, they tend to be very, very slow, a lot of grinding, and it kind of becomes like a chore. So you kind of want something in the middle ground. How do you see that in Elden Ring, the game you've been playing lately? Yeah, funny enough, one thing that I think I would compare it to is that kind of going back to when you're fighting a boss, the first time you go in, you're going to get absolutely destroyed because you know nothing about the boss, their moveset, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the more you play, the more you'll recognize the moves, the patterns, and you'll be able to adapt. And eventually you'll get to the point where you know the boss like the back of your hand and you'll eventually be able to like, you know, no hit them. And of course that works in a video game. That's what rewards that sense of accomplishment that you've sort of like you studied, you've taken your time, the patience, determination, and you overcame that obstacle. The problem in sort of adopting that sort of mentality towards anything in real life is that that's simply not how progress in one's life works. Like if I were to say, it's like, hey, how do I get a novel published, if you will? Well, you know, you can go online, you can find countless guides of like step by step and how to do all this, but speak to anyone who has actually tried to go through that process. And they will tell you that all the step-by-step guides are just, I mean, like they, they give you kind of a direction, but once you get out there, it's just a mess. There is no one path. There is no one downset way to do it where it's, oh, if I do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, I'll get this goal. Life just does not work that way. And I can tell that for a lot of people that, especially who have kind of like been adapted by that sort of goal-oriented thinking, that sort of like feedback loop, that can be soul-crushing because they feel, not only do they feel discouraged, they feel lost. Like they have no idea how to even accomplish their goals. Right. So real life is way messier than video games. And I'm wondering if video games create a distorted sense of competence and progress and leveling up, and it sets your expectations to everything's in kind of in that flow state where it's just hard enough and it keeps you kind of looped in. But then you go into real life expecting the same kind of situation and you get a very different one. Exactly. Well, it's hard because there's pros and cons. For example, if you're trying to get in shape you can't just go to the gym once a week or just once and expect results you have to do it 20 minutes a day every day every other day for several months until you start seeing progress now that's sort of breaking things up into smaller little steps that sort of framing of gamification that can be useful because you're taking like hey i want to lose 50 pounds that in and of itself sounds like such an insurmountable task but if you break it up into little steps that you can sort of incrementally improve on much like you're like leveling up in a video game so in that case it can be effective but yeah then there's like the flip side of that coin where imagine you're trying to apply that to like getting a girlfriend or having a fulfilling relationship it's like okay so how many times do i have to buy my girlfriend flowers a year to like keep her happy. And that's just, especially for a lot of young men who I think kind of were raised on video games and that sort of thinking, they approach relationships or maybe jobs with that mindset where if I like almost like it's like a math problem where it's like, there's a very set established set of steps or rules that I have to do to get a desired result. And then they kind of get thrown into the world where it does not work that way whatsoever. And again, it not only do they feel very lost and confused, but they get so discouraged because now that way of thinking they've sort of adapted to gets completely thrown out the window. Yeah, it seems like what we're talking about here is process-oriented versus outcome-oriented. Because if you focus on the process of doing things, and this is actually something I got from the pickup community, was that you want to focus on doing the right steps. You should feel good as long as you're doing the things you need to do, not on the objective outcomes, because you can't control those, as you're saying. Like, there's a quote from Jean-Luc Picard saying, you can do all the things right and still lose. That's just life, and it happens all the time. If you're playing a video game, if you do all the things right, can you still lose? Depends on what 
framework we're talking, I guess. That's a good I point. I mean, if you're, if you're playing original Mario, you, you can't. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about the newer games that they're more complex, but it's interesting because that life lesson doesn't necessarily translate to video games. I think it, you can still lose, yes. Because like I play a lot of roguelikes, which are games that you start off basically the same skills. I mean, over time, some of them have like meta progression, so you get better unlocks or more health at the beginning. But those games will give you random drops and you can't really know what's going to be coming. So you don't know what kind of build you're moving towards and you can make the right choice every step along the way and it can still crush you eventually. So there are some games that do do that. Other games, I guess, are more maliciously designed, possibly to make it so that like a slot machine, you're almost going to win. They see you're about to win and they might throttle the difficulty a little bit. But those are probably more like addictive mobile games. Or even like, you know, if you're, like, you're fighting a boss, RNG is, it just depends on what moves they do. Do you want to talk about what RNG is? Yeah, you can do everything right perfectly and sometimes the game will just screw you over. But those are, I think, for the most part, like as you said, when it comes to like something like the old Mario, those little hiccups are few and far between. But, you know, for the most part, like with like, you know, the old school Mario, you see people online doing like these insane levels that look impossible, but they really aren't because they are just a series of inputs. Once you get that, it can be very difficult to get there. But once you got it, you will accomplish the game no matter what, because everything moves exactly as it's supposed to every single time the exact same way. It's never randomized. And this random component to these modern games are interesting because they're highly addictive. And Phil just said it. It's like a slot machine. And the loot boxes, they're disguised as this kind of just harmless thing. But they're really just gambling inside of a gaming context. Mm Mm-hmm. And how it sort of ties into sort of the whole like pay to win culture with a lot of these games where you kind of almost I I think I've even like read stuff on like how some of those games will actually kind of like make it very easy in the beginning as if like you're doing great and kind of like get you that high of like, oh, you're winning, you're kicking ass and then you'll hit a brick wall and that'll be so demoralizing because like you'll have taken care of 50 levels before that, no problem. And then you get to one level you're stuck on for like 10 days or like a week and it's so demoralizing that that makes it that much more likely that maybe, hey, why don't you buy this power up for five bucks or this one for 10 bucks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Tinder actually seems to do that. A lot of dating apps seem to do that where they will front load the people who have swiped right on you. I don't know about the women's side, probably similar, but for the guy's side, at least they will have it so that the first while that you have it for maybe first few days, possibly, you will have a lot more matches and then suddenly it'll just drop off. (laughs) So you'll feel like, wow, this is an amazing app. Oh my God, so many women are into me. And then suddenly much less. (laughs) No way. I didn't know they were doing that. Yeah, they're all kind of doing that now. Well, the worst part there, and this is sort of a very sort of unsettling truth of it, is that if you're someone who's going to have a lot of success on dating apps, because the issue with dating apps for a lot of guys, a lot of guys think that like, oh, online dating will be easier than going out and meeting people in real life. But what you'll actually find with a lot of guys is that the online space is so much more appearance oriented like obviously because you're not going off of someone's personality or their body language you're only looking at how they present themselves with pictures words etc etc so for a lot of guys they actually find that they do a lot worse online and the irony is that even all those sort of like hey pay to see matches or pay to have your profile promoted the people who actually have success on like dating apps they don't need that stuff like they'll never need that stuff it's always usually guys who aren't doing well who will sort of pay for those sort of services but it'll just make things worse because if you didn't have success without them you probably aren't going to have that much more success with them and so it kind of makes the whole thing very scummy makes it very predatory for a lot of guys who were seeking out these apps for validation it's just feeding off of that negative feedback loop it's like hey keep paying 
you'll find someone eventually. But yeah, and it's I think the very nature that it is much easier to do, much more easy to have these like knockout women right there for you can to deem attractive or unattractive that a lot of these guys are pushed there. And like in business, if you find an area that has a very low barrier to entry, then it's going to be like really neck and neck, very competitive domains. And I think that's kind of what that market has become, that dating market where there's a bunch of guys that aren't great with women, all trying to get the best women there. And those women obviously can have their pick of the lot at that point. I mean, probably generally, but yeah, it's a, it's kind of a race to the bottom in that way. Yeah. It's also hard because kind of applying that to the feedback loop, what tends to happen is that, because if you consider you take a guy who doesn't have a lot of success with women to other women, well, one, he'll probably have a lot lower self-confidence and that will come across even if he goes out and tries to chat up women or get a date, that lack of self-confidence will come across. So the less success you have with women, that actually can hurt your chances because that can like kind of mess with you mentally, which will come off in your behavior, which might make you come off as needy or insecure, which are not attractive traits. But then there's the flip side where if you're a guy who, even if you don't have any success with women, let's say you have a good date or you know, like you get laid or something, that will boost your confidence. Then you go out the next night with this sense of confidence, which will improve your odds. Yeah. So I'm not exactly sure what it's called, but it's sort of this exponential growth in the sense of once you get one opportunity, I'll compare it to YouTube. It's a lot easier to go from a thousand subs to 10,000 subs than it is to go from zero subs to a thousand subs. It's sort of like exponential gains. But unfortunately, it's also exponential negative consequences as well for a lot of guys. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In gaming terms, actually, there's positive and negative feedback loops that I found a weird definition for them. So like positive feedback loops are people, as you described, people who are winning continue to win and actually get things that help them further win. Whereas negative feedback loops would be like Mario Kart in gaming terms, where if you're in the lead, you get worse items and you're more likely to get targeted by attacks. Yeah, I, I like the imagery of upwards and downward spirals in, in a sense. And, and if you're in a downward spiral, it can breed that resentment of, oh, the rich get richer. And that's kind of a, a snowballing, compounding kind of part of your downward situation. And it's interesting the parallels between everyday life, gaming, and I want to kind of bring this into the addiction space. Yeah, I was actually looking at something I have very big letters here. It's, uh, are you having fun is a very key question in both realms. Because I found myself playing a game the other day or like a few months back called The Ascent, which was very popular. And I was playing it and I was just like leveling up. I was like level 25 by the time. I was like, when is this going to be fun? Like, when is this game going to start being fun? Because I'm progressing, I'm moving forward, I'm doing what the game is giving me and it's not there. And Steve, how do you tie that into your angle of things? A nice setup there. So when I was working in a casino as a problem gambling prevention specialist, I'd literally walk around and talk to people on the gaming floor. I'd talk to people while they're gambling, about the gambling, people who are upset. Like I would specifically like try to greet people who looked really upset and just to see if I can ask them how their day's going and try to loop them into a conversation. But the one question that I found that you can ask someone to figure out if gambling is becoming more of an addiction is, are you having fun? And if they say it hasn't been fun for a long time, that's a real key indicator right there. Because from the outside, you can think, oh, these people are addicted to the pleasure of trying to get money and they're so greedy and these gamblers. But the experience is quite different. It's, it's not fun at all. And so that would tie into the question of, well, what's keeping you there if it's not fun? Where's the positive feedback loop? 
And I'm wondering how that might translate to your experience there, Phil, in terms of gaming. What was keeping you there? I think I was waiting for something to change. Maybe the game was going to introduce some extra element that would make it more engaging. And at that point, when I realized it wasn't fun, I put it down. So like nowadays, the problem is we have too many games to play. So if it doesn't grab you, then you should just put it down like a bad book. Yeah. And the danger there is that I wonder, just from yours perspective how do you know or like in the case of like the gamblers what's kind of scary about it is do they realize the moment it stops being fun like do they kind of realize the shift from hey i'm having fun doing this to oh i'm actually addicted and my compulsion to keep going isn't that i'm having fun it's just that like my mind has sort of like been conditioned that kind of sounds scary in the sense that like what if they actually can tell that hey i'm just having fun just gambling a little bit or you know even playing a video game and then they just kind of keep doing that and they don't even realize and then like a month later they realize they're still doing it they feel this compulsion to do it but like oh wow this isn't fun i'm not having fun this is just a compulsion that my mind has been conditioned to expect yeah and then that's a slow descent it's like you're you're in the pot and it's slowly being turned to the boil and you don't notice until it's really boiling and maybe it's too late but that's it you know people don't realize until a little while later and so if it's not fun what is creating the compulsion it goes to that question in terms of the concept of the feedback loop i have my own ideas i'm wondering your sense mac what is creating something compulsion to keep doing something that's no longer fun in terms of like video games i don't really know because like there have been times when i've been like just getting destroyed in a certain video game or a certain level as you said you were recently yeah well like with Elden ring at least so far you know it's a souls game so you know you're going to die several times and you're kind of expecting that so it's okay however there's also a concept of it being there is sort of a limit there where oh if i fight the boss like five or ten times and die each time Like, that's okay. That's acceptable. But when it starts to get to a point where if you're a player and you're dying, like, you know, 20 times, 30 times, 50 times, which is not uncommon with some Souls games, depending on the player, it starts to become, even if you beat the boss, you're not happy. You're more relieved. You're more just like, (laughs) you're almost pissed off. I don't really know. It's kind of hard to explain. And so, yeah, I'm trying to reflect on, I don't know. It's like almost as if dying kind of instills a frustration in you. And so you kind of want to, because you know, if you step away right then and like go back out into your life, that frustration is going to fall with you. You're kind of going to be in a bad mood and you kind of keep telling yourself, no, no, no. If I try one more time and I beat them, then I'll feel better. Then that frustration won't be here anymore. And so maybe that's it. Reflecting on it, it's hard because I've been in that situation before. I'm like, I'm so angry. And I just keep going and trying again. And then I beat the boss and I'm more like, I'll throw the controller. I'm like, damn it, finally. I won't feel that sense of accomplishment. It's almost as if, yeah, I don't really know. I might have to reflect on that now that I'm thinking back. And what you're describing is quite consistent with a disgruntled gambler who's relieved that their money's all gone. And you wouldn't expect that. You know, <laughs> they're like, I have no money today. I'm oh, it's a relief. They, like there's some relief. It's it, they can be very frustrated about it, you know, but there is some kind of relief and I don't have to do this anymore. And there's like a frustration and pain of leaving, feeling defeated. But what you're describing is you're coming out of this, like there's a craving that's almost painful of like, I, I just need relief from this frustration. And when you're coming from a place of not like neutral to positive experience, you're coming from a place of negative experience to try to get rid of it. That's a very different experience. It's not fun. You're trying to come back to feeling normal again. And in terms of when is it ever enough? When do you ever get that? And winning a jackpot doesn't necessarily do it for gambling because it's just like, oh, it's free money. I can keep going and, and then it keeps going back down. Would you say like just from your experience, 
is hitting rock bottom or is getting to that level where you kind of like you have nothing left is that sort of a necessity for breaking someone out of their gambling addiction not necessarily it's it's common but not necessarily i mean i talked to plenty of people who are quite proactive and they're like i spent a few hundred today and i'm very uncomfortable with that and i'm going to make some changes and so it's kind of an old myth the myth of having to hit rock bottom and in like yourself i guess you didn't necessarily have to hit complete rock bottom to stop to get out of the chair to, <laughs> to leave and so there's a spectrum a lot of people do but not necessarily i guess i'm starting to think about well i used to play some souls likes games and they're dark souls games dark souls is a famous game that's notoriously difficult and it's from a tradition of I think it was Konami that did it. It had Ninja Gaiden. They had complaints from the testers saying it was too hard. And so they made it even harder to just double down on that. And I think it kind of appeals when thinking in terms of game loops. I think the short term game loop that you succeed at is pretty much every enemy you come across only has a limited number of movesets and they're always going to be the same. And they'll have some sort of telegraphing of what they're doing. And when you see them or you figure out what the pattern is, you get that dopamine hit of being able to correctly predict and correctly time your block and counter them very quickly. And then you're like, ah, oh, yeah, I dominated that guy. And then you continue on and there's going to be a bunch of different trials along the way. And the longer loop is being the actual boss. Because oftentimes, the ones that I've played at least, when you die, you go back to the beginning of the level. All the mini enemies are still repopulated so you have a lot more experience with them but then finally when you beat the boss you get a new checkpoint where you can start from there at least the ones that i've played and that is a sense of progression moving forward maybe you get some more plot but it's just i guess i'm thinking it's a negative reward you're taking away the negative stimulus the noxious stimulus of the annoying boss that keeps dominating you that makes sense yeah i love how you use the word dopamine because i'm surprised i haven't brought it up yet it's completely relevant here so the difference between doing something because you're just genuinely enjoying it and and kind of this compulsive sticking with it despite negative consequences is kind of how the dopamine is not necessarily pleasure because people often associate the dopamine neurotransmitter with just pure pleasure but really it's a learning neurotransmitter and it's produced when you have an unexpected reward or an unexpected result that's a pleasant surprise i guess you can say so dopamine is produced oh pleasant surprise i figured out how to do this thing and it's near misses like nearing almost getting it right produces actually more dopamine it's like oh you're getting closer you're getting closer and so it's very much tied to a learning mechanism so addictions are, are learned behaviors not learned as in a textbook learning i'm going to memorize these facts but learned behaviorally and so i guess in terms of video gaming it very much applies to they give you just enough of a dopamine hit that you feel like a little bit of competence here and there and you may be dying often but there's enough competence and progression that you're like, oh, okay, a little reward. I'm learning more. I'm learning more. Is that is that accurate? I mean, I, I would say so. Funny enough, perfect bringing it up. There's actually one boss I'm stuck on in the ring right now. So for a lot of bosses, they're very, like, as you said, they're very difficult. But kind of going along with this sort of, like, little, like, piecemeal dopamine, every time you fight the boss, you'll probably do a little, on average, you'll do a little bit better. Oh, I got him down 25%. Oh, now 50, now 75, now 90. And even if you're dying, that little sense of, I'm doing better each time that is rewarding so there are even some bosses where people will die 50 times and and then they'll finally beat it and they'll be elated they'll enjoy it they'll feel very rewarded there's one boss right now no spoilers of course for people listening but already i'm seeing within the community that people are reacting very 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 negatively to it and that is because the design of the boss doesn't really allow for that small progression it's a very unfairly designed boss in the sense where not a lot of thought was put into that 
ability for players to sort of learn from their mistakes and continue to improve every single time. And so what happens is a lot of players, whether or not they succeed or fail, it usually just comes up to a matter of luck or a matter of like, you know, RNG stuff that's out of their control. And so that rewarding factor isn't present. Instead of a lot of people getting excited or sort of like reacting positively to it, they're just getting pissed off. Like I've checked out comments online on Reddit, on Twitter, even like lifelong fans of the series are like, this is like the worst boss we've ever seen. Seems like a patch will be coming out. <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't allow for that sort of learning experience. Again, even if you die 50 times to another boss, oh, I'm doing better each time. It gives you that you still died, but oh, you're doing better. You're succeeding. You're improving a little, or at least you get that feeling that you're improving. Whereas in this case, it's just unfair punishment basically yeah just frustration rng for those who are wondering is random number generator which a lot of the games they just kind of make it so it's, it's harder to predict at times and like that's what i was talking about with like the items that will drop one of the things i find myself wondering through this discussion and the lead up to it was it seems like video game addiction is much more of a problem among men and i'm not sure if this is because of something that warren farrell he's a feminist slash men's rights activist or i guess men's live if you want to be more charitable he said that men are human doings and women are human beings and what he meant by that was that men are valued by what they can do what they can provide in terms of actual services whereas women are valued for other factors obviously appearance and the way we find meaning in life is often at least pushed on us for men is that we want to go out and perform and do what needs to be done and video games kind of simplify this women on the other hand according to his thinking they can find meaning more in their relationships to other people and i think that's something that can probably fall for both sides we can find meaning in our relationships it's just that men are not encouraged or taught to do that but video games kind of whittle down and refine distill the parts of life that we're taught to find rewarding or taught to pursue and i can't tell if this is more socialization or and to do with like the history of things why video games appeal to men more these days because I mean, even the history of like why boys play video games more is to do with Nintendo having to choose between the boys toy aisle and the girls toy aisle in the 90s. And they just happen to choose boys. But what do you guys think about this, like this distillation of what it means to be a man being performance? Yeah, I, I think definitely that's a narrative you'll find a lot in a lot of these sort of like red pill or, you know, MGTOW communities is that men have to. I think they put it women just are men have to become. Like there's this idea that like men have to, it's not enough to just be who you are. It's that you have to like have to accomplish things to be quote unquote a man. You have to, you have to have something to show for your life. The issue there is that if you kind of like rewind back to the fifties and sixties, you know, a lot of people will talk about the sort of, it's a false narrative, but what they'll say is like, well, if you look at statistics back in like the fifties and sixties, men and women were a lot happier than they are today. And it's like, oh, so that means it was better back then. It's like, well, no, not necessarily. The difference then was back then people's path through life was a lot more narrow. It was a lot more, Hey, if you're a man or if you're a woman, these are the steps you do. If you're a man, you get married, you have kids, you go to work, you support your family, yada, yada, yada. And that was what you do. It was a very narrow, defined path. There wasn't a lot of room for societal, in terms of socially, there wasn't a lot of deviation there. But as time goes on, and as like sort of like that old school life structure breaks apart and people are doing kind of whatever they want to feel fulfilled, I put it this way, like imagine you're walking through a forest, you come across two paths. It's like, okay, I can take either A or B. And like, maybe you'll take A and, oh, I wonder what B would be like. But at the end of the day, you know, it's not very weighted because it's like it's only two paths. Nowadays, it's like you're walking through a forest and then you come into a fork in the road and there's like 50 paths. And for a lot of young people, especially guys, instead of being liberating, instead of being freeing, hey, you can do whatever you want. It's horrifying. 
because there's no guidance for a lot of kids like, Hey, you graduate college. And it's like, okay, what do I do now? It's like, I don't know. Yeah, good luck. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's even harder for men because they sort of, again, this compulsion to deliver, they have to make a lot of money or own a business, yada, yada, yada. And as time goes on, as minimum wage has gone down, price of college and housing has gone up, it makes it even harder for men because now they feel like it's so much harder to succeed in you know, the business world or what have you. It sort of discourages them even more because then guys who are, they might be doing fine. They might be have a decent job and, you know, or doing whatever. And they'll just feel like losers because, you know, also social media doesn't help when they like look online and they see guys like I made $10 million last year with NFTs or like whatever. It just makes them feel even more discouraged because they feel again, their masculinity or how they define themselves as a man is based off of how they sort of measure up to other men in terms of what they produce or what they make. It's hard because on one hand it can be like, obviously you want to motivate people to, you know, pursue goals and dreams but there is a limit where it can actually be discouraging and then to kind of wrap it back around the video games i almost wonder if it is in some way for many men a substitute because a lot of people will sort of that it's like the chicken and the egg question is it that men are becoming more socially withdrawn because of video game addiction or is that video game addiction simply a coping mechanism to deal with the fact that they aren't succeeding in their lives i mean obviously for certain men it can be either or but i almost wonder if the main issue isn't that men aren't succeeding because of video game addiction it's that men aren't succeeding when they go out in the world or like the path of success or whatever that you know whatever that means is so daunting and so unclear that it's very comforting to resort to a video game where the path from a to b is a lot more clear a lot more defined that sense of rewarding that dopamine hit is so much more readily available i just want to shoehorn something in here on that. That is spot on exactly where I was going with that. I think you just said it better. <laughs> I think I would like to point out that like, while we are talking about men's issues here, this is not to take away from the issues of non-cis-het men, because we are obviously speaking from our own experiences. Other people have their own struggles. This isn't to take away from them. But in my thinking, we need to acknowledge various angles of the same problem in order to help cure the problem ultimately. This also makes me think Steve and I were just talking to another guest the other day about escape from freedom. That seems very relevant to this. Oh, that's so relevant to this. Yeah. And that's what the video game addiction seems to symbolize is, is the new landscape of there's no set prescribed path like in the 50s not to idealize the 50s but to compare it there's so much freedom now but with it comes extra responsibility and it's more difficult to feel like you're making the right decision when you have so many options and there's actually studies on this of you know if you have like two or three pairs of jeans to choose from in a store versus like a hundred you're less satisfied in the option where you had the hundred than having fewer options and so you've kind of found this space of constant dissatisfaction in questioning oneself did I make the right decision and then being able to compare ourselves to other people more readily via social media and reinforcing that thought pattern the thought feedback loop of I'm not enough and then you go on social media you scroll you see that you're like yep evidence I'm not enough and there's its own feedback other people's highlight reels I almost wonder if in that theory that they sort of discuss because one thing that always really bugged me again when you're like a kid and like going through it you don't really realize it but then when you look back you're like wow that was really crappy of you know society i feel like high school doesn't really prepare kids in finding what it is they are passionate about or what they find fulfilling in their life and so they'll go through high school 
just learning like, you know, in many cases, you know, there are some kids like, oh, I found a passion for writing or for music or for film. And that's great. But for a lot of kids, that's not the case. They're still figuring things out by the time they reach 17, 18, which is understandable. They're still kids at that point. But then someone comes along and says, hey, by the way, you have to choose a college. Not only that, but you also have to choose your major, which is probably going to be the main focus of your career in life for the next 20 years. And if you're a kid who's 18, trying to pick a college major and you don't really know what you're passionate about or what path you really want to go down that's even worse and then you get two years or maybe you think you do like oh i'm I'm really passionate about biology and then two years into your college program you realize you hate it but you're already two years deep and you're like i really don't think especially in like the new as you were saying like this new age of freedom where everyone has all these options with kids we don't really sort of promote them trying to find out what they are passionate about or what path in life they want to follow. We kind of like put them on rails all the way up until they're 18 or even after college 22. And then they just throw them in the pool basically with no guidance on like, they have no idea like what they want, what they're passionate about, what makes them happy, what makes them fulfilled. And then they go on to a society that expects so much from them where like you have to produce immediately. You have to get a job immediately. Yeah, I'm just going to interject. I think Steve has to jump out right now. I do have to pop out of here, but Phil's going to continue. I love this conversation, by the way. This is like right up our alley, but Phil's going to continue on with that. Thanks a lot for coming on. No worries, man. Nice to meet you. He's actually going to miss the part that he'll like the most, which is I wanted to close off on talking about the positives of things. But I think you put your finger exactly on a part that society currently or discussion, especially on the right, is kind of missing where they're talking about how they want the freedom to do blah. And we want freedom, but they always forget the component of responsibility that comes with it. Like, yes, you have freedoms to do whatever, but they always focus these days, at least. I don't know your stance on any of the vax or mask stuff, but the emphasis is always on the freedom to do stuff, the positive freedom. And they seem to completely overlook the freedom from that people are guaranteed, like freedom from being punched in the face, for instance, but the freedom to throw punches is still there. What's funny about that is that when I was, I think I discussed it in the dating video, actually, I kind of went through my, I I don't like to admit it, but like, you know, I kind of bordered alt-right phase when I was like, you know, maybe five or six years ago through online, like Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, Miley Yiannopoulos when he was big. And one of the main things that I heard from a lot of those figures and this was mostly aimed at kids who felt very disenfranchised like you know kids who were out of college and they didn't know what they wanted to do with their life or like were going into a field they weren't passionate about was that choices have consequences and i agree obviously i agree with that i don't really think we prepare kids i think one of the main flaws in our education system is we don't really give kids the weight of those consequences like when i was in high school They didn't really ask us, hey, do you want to go to college? You know, is that something you wanted to? It's like, no, one of our English assignments was you're writing college essays. It was almost kind of like reinforced and expected of us. And then I realized looking back four years, I enjoyed my time at college, but I wonder if more options had been opened up to me if I would have chosen something different. Yeah. But what's interesting is that now, particularly with not necessarily mask mandates, but with private businesses requiring masks and stuff, I actually see a lot of that same attitude But now it's reversed, where a lot of people will say, oh, I don't like it that I have to, I don't want to wear a mask when I'm going out to dinner or going to the grocery store or if I'm flying on an airplane. And these private companies, again, if it's a government mandate, I'm not in favor of that. But if these private companies are like, hey, like, okay, you don't have to, but you're not going to be able to eat at Chili's or like you can't (laughs) fly to Cabo or something. Now I find myself telling those people, it's like, well, your choices have consequences. 
you don't have to wear a mask if you don't want to, but you also have to understand that at this current time with these private businesses that can do as they please, you don't have any control. And it's ironic because like a lot of them are kind of throwing temper tantrums. Oh, yeah. Like little toddlers. I'm like, oh, I can't eat a Chili's. It's like, well, yeah, because they don't want you getting their customers sick and yeah. destroying their business. Sorry. I also have had discussions. I have people who are friends of mine who are all over the political spectrum. And they seem to think that like all the vaccines being pushed as being required for jobs was 100% government's doing. And I'm like, there are giant corporations that chose the mandate that their employees had to both come back into the office and had to be vaccinated. And I mean, from a giant corporation's perspective, this makes perfect sense. Like if that does stop the spread or stop the likelihood of death, then it'll help them with the PR because they won't have random outbreaks. And then the other side is people won't be getting sick as often. So it just makes more sense, even if the government hadn't mandated it. But it's the same people that were like, oh, if you don't want to make a cake for gay people, then you don't have to, that are complaining about these things. I just saw something about PragerU, if you're familiar with them, a right-wing propaganda outlet, basically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they were complaining about how conservative ideas are being attacked because I think their videos were being less pushed on the YouTube algorithm. But then it's like, oh, well, sorry, like you were the one that were saying that like if a company wants to choose to do certain ways of business, then they should have the freedom to do that. And now that it's not in their favor, oh, suddenly it's an issue. Or not even that, but like with the PragerU vids or whatever, what consequence is that of like the actual company pushing your video down in the algorithm or you just not being popular yeah if one of my videos doesn't do well i don't automatically go it's like this must be youtube like you know attacking me there's a lot of conspiratorial thinking that way i mean that actually helps the conservative message right like to be under attack is something that actually unifies the right all the time which is why they're always screaming like their hair is on fire yeah well it's funny that you mentioned that because when i was this is about the gay wedding cake thing was what was like five or six years ago something like that i remember and as someone who's always been rather left-leaning i think at most i became like i was a libertarian for a while but i remember when that case came out i was the same way i was like yeah i agree with the cake shop they shouldn't have to do that i don't like it if i ever am in wherever that town was i'm not gonna go to that bakery because i don't agree with their decision but yeah i don't think they should be forced to do that and so yeah it's very frustrating that back then i was even as someone who was on the left i was like yeah i actually agree with their decision to do that i don't like it but I don't think that they're a private business and if they aren't required to provide the service, like I'm not happy about it, but like, okay, there are other ways to go about protesting that. But now in this case, it's, yeah, it's like if you're a private business, not even that, but what a lot of people don't understand is just how, especially like during the COVID era, just how deadly people getting sick, obviously not for the people getting sick, but for the business can be. If you have a workplace where you have, say, 15 workers and three get sick, well, if those three workers are out for a week, the 12 workers you have have to take up that workload. Yeah. And so now you have these 12 workers doing a lot more work. It might make it more likely for some of those workers to get disgruntled and quit. This actually happened with a lot of businesses here in Chicago, where what would happen is you would have people would end up getting let go or fired or getting sick and they couldn't work. So all the work you know, usually spread out over like, say like 10 people was now being done by seven. This happened a lot with restaurants, like servers. And then those seven people got frustrated and then people would leave. And then now you had only four people doing all the work. And eventually it would just get so insurmountable that the business would close down. 
And so, yeah, these businesses are like, we have a very vested interest in making sure everyone is healthy and able to work. Because if people start getting sick and they're out and they can't work, even from a completely selfish standpoint, that does us no good. And that hurts us. And that could actually even be deadly to our business. Exactly. Yeah. For smaller businesses, too. A couple things come to mind. I think for the cake thing, I'm still torn about that. I think in the one hand, yeah, I guess individuals can choose who to sell. They can choose to not sell to certain people. But if, say, like post- Jim Crow South, where everyone could collaboratively choose to not serve a certain group that obviously shouldn't be allowed. Like that kind of coalition ends up obviously disenfranchising the already disenfranchised. But on the other hand, I think if I was a gay person wanting to get a wedding cake from that particular shop, I don't know that I'd want to give them my money. So like if there are other options, I guess if there are other options, it seems like it's okay. But when it gets widespread, I don't, it's a really sticky topic. I don't have a firm stance on that. I think we shouldn't discriminate, but I guess if bigots want to be bigots, then they're down business, I guess economic theory says that they will lose out in the long run because their demographic of choice is smaller. Yeah, well, it was interesting because that was such an interesting case because if it was just a case of like, you know, the owner saying it's like, hey, you're gay, I'm not serving you, that would clearly be discrimination and you could sue them up the ass. The difficulty was that I think what the issue was is that it wasn't necessarily serving those individuals. It was more... The cake itself? Or sort of like the service. I think it was compared to sort of like an artist doing commissions. Like an artist should be able to deny commissions based on the work obviously like hey if you're gay i'm not gonna you know draw a painting for you that's one thing but if you have umbrage with whatever you're depicting that's kind of where the case sort of like melted into the gray area where it wasn't really discrimination it was more again it was sort of like a messy thing and that's why i even someone who was like like you know basically fuck these people like just make the damn cake even i was like yeah i don't think this is something we should push but as we said, now, five or six years later, the shoe's on the other foot. And I'm seeing all these same people who I, even I side with, and I wasn't happy to, but I side with whining that like, why won't this private business let me go without a mask? And it's like... The same arguments apply. It's just conservatives typically seem to be, and this is, maybe it's not conservatives like classical conservatives, but the modern substantiation of them is, if it doesn't affect me, then everything's fine. And if it does affect me, then it's bad. Like the only ethical abortion is my abortion kind of thing. We're against it overall. But if I have an issue, then that that's a special case. And I think these are people that, I don't know, it's hard to tell because it seems like there's, I don't know, we're going really down a rabbit hole in politics here. But I wanted to go on was how feedback loops can be used positively. So we can talk about that if you're open to it. Well, you're going to have me back on. We'll talk about uh, something like that. But to kind of connect it back to sort of that, sort of like the exponential, the graph is kind of like it's flat in the middle. And then as you go, it kind of like goes up, but then all down. Yeah. Like imagine the way I put it is like, think about like you're an actor and you get a role a single role in a television show or something. Well, now that you're exposed, then you get three more roles. And then after those three roles, you get nine more roles. And so it's exponential. But on the other hand, let's say you're just living your life, working your job, you have a car, you have a girlfriend, yada, yada, yada. You get laid off at your job. Okay, so now you're losing money. You can't afford your car. So now because you can't afford the car, it's a lot harder for you to get to interviews to get a new job. Eventually, this causes stress. You and your girlfriend end up breaking up. So it's not just like this one setback and then like you kind of get it back. It's this one setback leads to two setbacks, leads to four setbacks, and it can spiral downhill very, very quickly. So it's hard because it's sort of like a deal with the devil sort of thing where these positive feedback loops can be so useful and encouraging people. Like you kind of give them that like one little head of dopamine that encourages them to reach for more they feel confident and powerful because they succeeded which makes them more likely to succeed as they keep continuing 
But there's the flip side of that coin where that lack of success can actually lead to discouragement, lead to lack of self-confidence, which can make it harder to get more opportunities in the future. Yeah. Have you heard of the boots theory? I have not. So the boots theory is more to do with economics, but summed up in this quote, a man who could afford $50 had a pair of boots that would be keeping his feet still dry in 10 years time, while a poor man who could only afford cheap boots would have spent $100 on boots in the same time and would still have wet feet. Basically, it's more expensive to be poor. And this is kind of a similar thing where you're kind of scrounging just to make ends meet. And that very scrounging causes you to be further screwed because people won't want to work with you too much. But I think on the positive side, like we keep talking about like negative feedback loops, I think in terms of games, like what positives have you seen that you've gotten from learning these loops? Because like to play new games, especially the more complex systems games, you have to learn more about systems. So how do you see these have positively affected your life? I think the main thing, and I got to hype them up, like the Souls games in particular, when I was younger, I felt like when I was playing games, I was a lot more apt to quit if I wasn't winning. Because like, you know, if you look at a lot of games that are aimed at younger audiences, they're very forgiving. I used to play Spyro when I was a kid. And even if you lost all your lives on a certain level, it would just start you back at the beginning of the level. Like there wasn't a lot of like big consequence. Something that I've realized what I kind of enjoy about the Souls games is that there's a lot of consequences to your actions. Like, you know, if you die you might lose all your runes, which are like your money in the game to level up and stuff. And yeah, the more you die, if you can't get back to them, it makes it hard to level up. But in particular, especially with the boss levels, you know, it's kind of gotten me to adapt to, it's okay to lose. It's okay to be defeated. You know, if I died to a boss 10 times, you know, if I were a kid, I would be like, well, screw this. And I'd throw the controller away because I'm like, I'm not winning. But now you're kind of looking at the small incremental things that you're learning. So it kind of like Thomas Edison. I didn't fail. I just found out 99 ways to not make a light bulb, I believe it was. Yeah, something like that. (laughs) It's like every time, even if you die, what did you learn? And it was actually kind of refreshing in the sense that like usually I, I should be getting frustrated right now. But somehow fighting this like boss is kicking my ass. It's motivating me in the sense that like, oh, I'm learning. Oh, he has this attack. Oh, I know how to dodge this attack now. I'm learning the timing of his move. And once you overcome it, once you master it, it makes you feel powerful. So in a way, I think particularly the Souls games, they've kind of helped me in terms of being okay, not only with setbacks, but sort of seeing the positives and the negatives, how negative experiences can still be learning experiences, how they're still positives, even if you fail, and just sort of like adopting a patient's mindset of, hey, if I'm applying for jobs, if every time I get a notebook, like, hey, we're going with someone else, like, I'm sure you're the same way. Like, maybe when you were first looking for jobs, that was like crushing. You're like, oh, God, they don't love me. But like, now you apply to like 50 jobs, and they all reject you. You're like, eh, whatever, it's not a big deal. Because you know it's not like an indictment on you as a person or against your character. It's just part of the process. And sort of accepting that and knowing it's okay to fail, as long as you can find some sort of positive out of it, that's, I think, especially with the Souls games, I think that's something that I've learned. Yeah, you get some grit out of it. I used to hate myself. When I first started playing the games, I'm like, I died to the boss. I suck. And then I go online. They're like, yeah, I beat him after 50 tries. I'm like, oh, okay. Now I feel better. Even like the skilled players die a lot good. Yeah. I remember reading this essay. I have no idea where it is or it was just some obscure blog back when the internet was more wild. And this guy was writing about how he used to love RPGs as a kid. And eventually he realized that RPGs, for those who are unfamiliar, usually you're playing these characters and you fight monsters and you get experience and then you level up. And the leveling up is the part that gets the improvement. The player doesn't improve necessarily, but the characters do. So he realized that the different 
styles of gaming, he started choosing games that were more the player getting better, not the character. So in Souls, it's kind of a mix. You, you have to be good still yourself as the, as the player, but the character also improves. But like stuff like, I don't know, I think Gattaca was one of those games way back in the day or Shinobi. Those games required you to get better. And ever since reading that essay, I think I started <laughs> focusing on playing games that actually would get more of that grid like you're talking about. That's a great point. The other thing I've noticed is that by identifying these loops and thinking about them, because like I'm playing a lot of Slay the Spire and other kind of randomly generated items that you start off with nothing. You have to keep building your attacks and your deck with your items. I know you already know this, but I'm just <laughs> talking to the people who don't. Those ones I find have gotten me to be more aware of how different small pieces can integrate to make a really huge impact in the long term. Like my partner, she is teaching knitting online and for her I've started identifying like because I'm helping her to grow her business she has started doing these online knit alongs which she thought were just because it's free anybody can show up she didn't think it was going to actually help too much but it seems actually like a key piece that helps everything else in the business because with doing that she gets more rapport with the people she has more face time with the people then they're more likely to sign up for classes more likely to spread the word and it's starting to really snowball as a result of that have you found that with your live streams Absolutely. In particular, what I found on how to sort of capitalize on, I was actually talking about it with a friend a while back. We were talking about finding success on YouTube. The one thing I realized was that the YouTube algorithm is kind of temperamental. It's sort of hard to sort of like put your finger on it. It can do a lot for you and it can really screw you over. But something I realized was that, so I have like one video that went viral and I got like 2 million views on it. Which one was that? It was on male celebrity body oh, transformations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was surprised by that. I was like, oh, wow. However, the danger in that is that when your next video you put out only gets, even if it does great, even if it does gets like 100,000 views, you kind of compare it like, oh, I didn't get 2 million. What the hell? And what I found is that the most successful channels, like there are some channels where they'll have like one video that has a million views and then everything else has like 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 but then I see channels where every video, none of the videos go viral, but all the videos are doing well. They get like 40,000 views, 50,000 views, sometimes 100,000 views. And so none of them go like super viral, but it's that consistency in that, oh, the people who watch this video will go to this video, which will go to this video, which will loop back. And so it kind of becomes like, again, this positive feedback loop where it doesn't grow like super fast. It's not like you just get like one video that just blows up immediately that can sometimes be the kiss of death because people only go to your channel for that one video and they never watch any of your content ever again but it's the people who are consistent and sort of like you know this decent video leads to this decent video and people who find that video loop back to that video and it kind of is like this slow feedback loop the problem is that it's not a fast process it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time of consistency. But if you're able to sort of like grind through that a year or two later, you're going to find that you have a very sustainable level of income. You're not just hoping for that one thing to go viral. You're kind of building a very strong base that you're building upon slowly. But it's hard for especially like, you know, you see other videos like going viral or like certain businesses that like get a lot of exposure and People want that big dopamine hit. They want that big like, oh, yeah, got three million views. Awesome. Yep. They want to be put on. Yeah, it's a lot harder to kind of like buckle down and just slowly grind up, put in the work and enjoy the work, of course. But it's a lot less initially rewarding, like in the moment. But over time, it will eventually lead to a much more fulfilling 
career. For sure. And I think that's actually what like good teachers do do. Because I was thinking about, let's say guitar, because that's something that you can't quite fail at. Not like business where like there's a bunch of random other factors that can affect it. So like, suppose your goal is to play Freebird. Freebird, exceptionally difficult. If you jump straight to that, you're probably going to give up. And so I think a good teacher... And this is actually what studies were for back in like, you see, I don't know, like etude in G minor or something like that. Like etude means study in French. In those instances, it's the teacher at the time, the classical teachers way back when, they would actually be writing these things. So like for Elise, for instance, she needed to work on a particular technique or whatever of her playing. And so they wrote the specific piece for that student to practice it. But in terms of like modern day, I mean, obviously we're not going to have that, but you can choose, say, like a good teacher would know, like the different elements, different Lego blocks that are required to learn Freebird. And then they can give you easier songs that'll give you like the short term win, like the short loop that we're talking about. They'll give you those wins from that because you'll get to learn the technique that a certain part of the solo uses. And then once you get that down, you can do another song. So instead of having this giant mountain, we're looking at a bunch of foothills that are slowly getting higher and higher as you go. So I think that's one way I think that understanding this can actually be helpful. Absolutely. I've actually played guitar for about 15 years now, and I've taught students in the past. And the hardest part for the students is like the first week, because obviously a kid, you know, a young kid comes to you and they want to rock out. They want to like learn like the Freebird solo. They want to learn Eddie Van Halen solo or something like the ACDC solo. And the hardest part is like that first few weeks when you're trying to teach them like the basic chords, like CG. E minor D, for example, because that's just boring. Just like, oh, these like boring chords and just strumming. However, if you play guitar or even piano or, or just music, so many songs that this kid probably loves are made up of those four chords, C, G, D, and E minor. And so what's great about it is that those first few weeks suck because they're just learning these boring chords. But then once they have them down, then you start to show them. It's like, hey, with these four chords, you can play like 50 songs. And all of a sudden the floodgates open and the kid, like they're pumped. They're like, oh yeah, I can play all these songs that I love because I know these four chords. But getting past that initial bump of like having to do like the very rudimentary basics, because it sucks because like you're learning boring chords and your basic strumming patterns and your fingers hurt and you hate it and you're not like playing, you don't feel like the rock star you want to be. But if you can push past that and get to just just a little bit further and you can get to that level then all of a sudden again it's the feedback loop it's like oh you know c you know g you know d you know e hey you can use a capo and you can move it up a key and you can play this song and now you know another 10 songs and you just have to switch the chord order around it's always that first little bump that is so difficult for people to get by because you know people talk a lot especially nowadays about like grind culture well the issue there is that it should be to a limit you know obviously you have to like start out small and like slowly work your way up but sometimes if you get to a point where you're getting like just really bad diminishing results, sometimes it's not good to just keep grinding. Because like, you know, the sunken cost fallacy, if you will, of just trying to keep pushing something that's never going to happen. So there's always a point where you have to kind of, you know, be real and say, hey, is this something that actually is going to work out or is it just not in the cards? But yeah, that first little push, that first, you know, grind to see if this whatever it is, learning guitar, starting a YouTube channel, starting a business, whether or not this has potential, that's the hardest part to get through. But once you do, in most cases, I'd say you end up reaping the benefits. It just takes a lot longer than you would hope. Yeah. And I think that the grind culture thing reminds me of like what's called eustress or distress. So eustress is like EU as in like euphoria is like the positive stress that keeps you stronger, makes you better. Like working out, for instance, would be eustress, not like damaging your body. And 
I think that is one of the things that makes a difference as well. When it comes to grind culture, you got to basically follow like the principles of evolution. If something is not fit for the environment, you should probably take the lesson and drop it and adapt to that. I think some people really, like we've talked about before, they want just a set of rules to follow that will guarantee success. But you need to adapt. You need to stop doing the same thing. If it keeps getting failure, you need to adapt to that. Like relatives of mine that are older and fear getting dementia or Alzheimer's, they keep doing Sudoku. And it's the Sudoku again and again and again. And I'm just like, yeah, that's good. I'm glad you're doing something. And I don't want to like pop your bubble, but you could read a book upside down. You could write with your left hand. You could put on your shoes with your non-dominant hand, something like that. That will give your mind as much of a workout as probably more of a workout than doing the same thing repetitively, even if it's like Sudoku, like the new puzzles. You kind of got the basics down. That first bit where it was a struggle to learn, that's where you were maximally working your brain. After that, you're kind of working the grooves, getting them a little bit deeper. But yeah, I think this isn't actually related. This is the last point I had was the benefits of games and using, I guess, feedback loops is you can understand how different people's lives work. Like, have you ever played the game Papers, Please? Oh, I haven't played that one. I have played the follow-up, Return of the Oberdin. That game's awesome. Oh, I didn't know that was the same studio. Yeah, I've heard of that. I believe it is. So that game is excellent. But I haven't played Papers, Please, but I've heard very good things about it. Yeah, because in that one, people like to think that like in the times of the Nazis, they'd be the ones saving all the Jews and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, it's death by a thousand cuts in those systems. And that game very much drives that home because you're paid basically nothing. There's huge incentives to be corrupt or to help people or not help people or wrap people out because your family gets sick, you don't have enough food, your parents are dying. And it slowly makes you like you try to be this just person, at least most of us try to in games. And I think that does a really good job of showing you that that's difficult to do. (laughs) Very high note to to finish there. (laughs) Or kind of to go back to what we were talking about. How do you know when something stops being fun and starts becoming an addiction? How do you know that compulsion isn't because you're actually enjoying it, but because your mind is compelled to that's actually what is so dangerous about you know I, I speak in the dating video about you know falling into rabbit holes online on youtube or stuff like that and one of the biggest roadblocks i get from a lot of people is they say well this video i don't think it's gonna like make someone like become like a racist or homophobic this one video and that's sort of the trap it's like it's not about this one video it's about you'll watch this one video and you'll just kind of it'll be like yeah I'll just maybe like implant a little idea in your head and you'll see another video that might reinforce it. And all of a sudden, after you watch like hundreds of videos, all different topics, all different creators, what have you, you kind of don't even realize that you're adopting some pretty not savory ideas, but it doesn't feel that way. It's not like you're being like brainwashed, right? Like from a single video, like you're not being hypnotized or anything. It's that very death by a thousand cuts, that slow burn to the point where you don't even really realize it. And that's what makes it so insidious. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how propaganda or ideas work a lot of the time. And this is something we talked about in the episode on memes and how the academic definition is that they are technically alive in the same sense that DNA is because they replicate and they live. They're kind of parasites in our brains and we have different defense mechanisms built in the software of our brains, but that can be exploited by certain things. Like for instance, Fox News will continually talk about the same topic. They won't have any extra information, but simply having it repeated over and over again, you're going to start thinking, oh, this is actually a real issue. We should actually be considering this. And then you'll be giving it mind space when formerly you may not have. And we're actually going to do a video because of the, the whole Russian information, disinformation, I guess, that we're going to go into like 
all the different propaganda techniques that are used because it's, I guess what we're trying to do here is essentially get people to be more critically thinking about stuff and not necessarily take our perspective, but to just engage with the ideas as opposed to just digesting them, which I mean, fat chance of doing that if they're not already doing it, but you know, might as well try. Well, anyway, I think we've really said all we're going to say on this topic. Thanks for coming on and we'll definitely look forward to having you again. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, I'd love to come on again. That was a great combo. Yeah, hit me up anytime. I'd love to come back on. Great. Yeah, yeah, rub it in.